And for our reflection this afternoon, we are turning to Leviticus chapter 19, and we're going to read verses 11 through 14. Leviticus 19, verses 11 through 14. You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. You swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. We have been considering from this chapter the theme of holiness to the Lord. In fact, the recurrent phrase we find in verses 2 and 26, it also recurs in chapter 11, 44 and 45, as well as chapter 20, verse 7 and verse 26, is, I am the Lord, be holy as I am holy. And we have been looking at a series of statements in Leviticus chapter 19, which underscore what it is to be holy unto the Lord. What does a redeemed people look like? A redeemed people as they are living holy unto the Lord. And we established, first of all, looking in past week studies, that it involves, first of all, respect for parental authority, respect for parents. We saw that in verse 3. Then uh, keeping God's ordinances, in particular his Sabbath, verse 3. Um, verse 4, steering clear of idolatry. The matter of acceptable worship was discussed in verses 5 through 8. We cannot be holy unless we are worshiping God in a manner that is acceptable to him. And then last time we were in this passage, this chapter, we saw the whole matter of compassionate regard for the poor, compassionate regard for the poor. And verses 11 through 18 this evening provides a series of basic guidelines for what could be termed socially healthy, harmonious community living, as one man describes it. And the question is, what does such a community look like? And in a word, such a community is one in which equity and justice Whole sway. Equity and justice, not as determined by society, or we could say by societal consensus, but equity and justice as decreed by God. It is important we know that because today, as we know, the buzz term of our culture is that of justice. There's great talk today about this matter of social justice. And yet, in the light of God's word, the canons of such justice are anything but that which carries divine sanction. The bottom line is that true justice in society can never be realized without reference to the God of justice and truth. In other words, what we are saying is that God is the one who sets the agenda. God is the one who determines and defines what justice is all about. So we have in verse 11, two additional commands that are very much related to the issue of justice and truth. The first we considered the last time that concerned the matter of stealing. You shall not steal. And today, we want to look at the second. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not deal falsely. That concerns the whole matter of dishonesty in business. 
And examples of such false practices, business practices, are found in Leviticus chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, which speaks of deceiving one's neighbor in a matter of deposit or security, deceiving by way of robbery or by way of oppressing one's neighbor or having found something that was lost, lies about it and swears falsely. And in a word, what the word of God is impressing on us is the need for honesty in our business dealings. In our business dealings, we are to demonstrate the holiness of God who himself is true and just in all his ways. He's a God of justice. He's a God of equity. And of significance there in Leviticus chapter 6 at verse 2 is that such breach, such sins, such sins of dishonesty are, in the words of Scripture, Leviticus chapter 6 and verse 2, a breach of faith against the Lord. Now, that is very important because what that tells us right away is that dishonesty with regard to one's neighbor is at the same time, and even more seriously so, a sin against God himself. When we defraud others, not only are we defrauding them, not only are we deceiving them, but we are actually attempting to defraud God. And um, so, in a, in a word, if we are to be holy, we must be people of honesty, not only in our words, but in our business dealings. It's so easy today, the challenge of modern living, particularly these days in which we live, we're talking about an economic recession, times are hard, and it, one of the challenges is to maintain our integrity, to maintain honesty, those who are in business know precisely the temptations that are associated with um, doing things right and the word of God issues this reminder to us that we cannot be holy if we are dishonest. We must be holy as God is holy which means that we must avoid all that spells fraud and dishonesty and cheating in our business dealings. And this would go of course not to people in business but to each and every one of us as Christians. Then we have Thirdly, you shall not lie to one another. That's another prohibition we find here in verse 11. As Christians, we are to be truthful in our speech. Our speech must be marked by integrity so that our yes is yes, our no is no. We do not give a six for a nine, as the saying goes. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 25 tells us that as Christians, he says, this, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, if you consider those three commands, against stealing, against lying to one another, um, what runs common to all of these, stealing, dealing falsely, lying to one another, what do they have in common? They all have in common what we could describe as a breach of trust. A breach of trust. A breach of trust, not just with respect to others, but with respect to God. And hence, they all contribute to the breakdown of society, which cannot truly function unless there's that element of trust. If we have a society where people's word cannot be trusted. And that's where we are today. We, 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 we can't know, for example, when our politicians are telling the truth. We can't know when they're um, taking us for a ride. And 
it happens not just among politicians, but even among professing Christians. Professing Christians will excuse themselves at times in regard to lying. They characterize and classify lies as white lies, this kind of lie, that kind of lie. But here's the truth. All forms of lying, the word of God teaches, God hates. In fact, the very last book of the Bible tells that all liars will have their part in the lake of fire and brimstone. God detests lying. Lying is of the devil. The devil, we are told, is the father of lies. And when a society is given to lying, to stealing, to defrauding, then that constitutes a breakdown of trust. It breaks down community. The welfare of human relationships, whether as regards the family or the community or the wider society, cannot but be jeopardized by dishonesty, whatever form such dishonesty takes. Someone as well remarked, quote, truth is the bond of union and the basis of human happiness. Neither talent nor genius can be trusted unless based on truthfulness. This is the foundation of personal excellence and human character. This is the health and ornament of the nation. Loyal adherence to truth is a secret of a nation's power and a nation's glory. Here's what he says. When there is no truth but falsehood, when men's acts are at variance with their words, then there is no respect, nor honesty, nor security. End quote. Says another writer, without this virtue, there is no reliance upon language, no confidence in friendship, and no security in promises and oaths. I like that first point. Do you notice what he says? Without this virtue, that is, this virtue of truthfulness, there is no reliance upon language. And what do we find today? People are toying with language. They are playing with words. They are playing with common sense. They are generating lies which, it seems, they themselves believe and would have us believe. We are a society that's given to lying. And because of that, there's a breakdown in community. There's a breakdown in society. God knows exactly what he's doing when he laid down these laws even way back for ancient Israel. And added to all this is that where there's no truthfulness, there is no holiness. Where there's no truthfulness, there is no holiness. For the God who calls us to be holy is at once the God who is who is holy and true. Revelation chapter 3 verse 7 as well as Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10 characterizes the Lord as him who is holy and true. He who is holy and true. Now running parallel in idea to verse 11 are verses 12 and 13 and these verses also deal with the subject of dishonesty. Dishonesty. Verse 12 takes up the matter of dishonesty in relation to God, particularly as regards swearing by his name falsely. And the context of the passage suggests that to be engaged in any form of dishonesty in human relationships, be it stealing from another or lying to another, is to swear falsely by God's name. And to swear falsely by the Lord's name in any context is to profane the name of God. To profane his name is to do what? Is to cheapen and make it 
commonplace. It's to demean and defile his holy name. In short, it is to tarnish God's reputation. When we are given to dishonesty, the word of God is saying, and we use God's name, we call upon God's name, we are actually cheapening God's name. Why? Because in our life, in our practice, we fail to represent his character as being true, as being faithful, as being trustworthy. And to profane the Lord's name is the most serious thing because God himself declares in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 7 that he'll not hold guiltless the one who takes his name in vain. Now, what does it mean to be holy? We see in verse 13 what it means to be holy. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The word of God says the wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Here God issues a command for fairness and justice in employer-employee relationships. Fairness and justice in terms of paying the hired laborer his due wages, whether in formal employee-employee relationships or in relation to one who is working for us. We are to honor agreed upon terms of remuneration, and we are to do so in a timely manner. We should not have the person work for us and be tardy in paying them deliberately. We should not have it in our possession and fail to pay them in due course. We should not have the person running around waiting to be paid. Back in ancient Israel, a day laborer was typically poor and needy. And it's not like today where people got paid, let's say, every other week, every two weeks or weekly. What we had, what, what obtained back then in ancient Israel, workers were paid daily. And as such, those workers needed to be paid in a timely manner. They needed to be paid at the end of the day so as to provide food for themselves and their family. And with all such payment for one's gain, own gain for one's own convenience created, obviously, hardship and hence was forbidden. In fact, God took seriously this matter of withholding the wages of the hired laborer. So much so, he declared in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 15. Here's what God says. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it lest he cry against you to the Lord and you'll be guilty of sin. Now, it's one thing if we do not have it on hand, but the thing is, if we hire the person to begin with, we should not have them work knowing that we don't have it and then telling them after, listen, can I pay you three weeks from now? You see, that's the kind of thing. If, we, if we're not able to, we should say up front. Then it's left to the person now to say, well, okay, I'll do it, and then you'll pay me. We should not knowingly keep back what is owing to the one who worked for us, nor should we shortchange that person upon the agreed amount they are to be paid. In fact, James speaks up this very thing in the book of James, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 in his epistle. James hit out against these well-to-do people who are taking advantage of the poor laborers, and James writes, Come now, you rich, weep and howl, howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. 
He says, your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Notice there, James is talking about a situation where persons deliberately, willfully hold back wages. And we cannot, the word of God is saying, claim to be Christians, claim to be godly, and be doing that. Well, part of what it means to be holy also involves how we relate to those who are disadvantaged, those who are at the margins of society, those who are, we would use the term today, the less fortunate. Verse 14 speaks of the need for respect toward the physically challenged. Here's what God says. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. We have here a prohibition against demeaning and insulting persons who cannot defend themselves because they're visually or orally impaired. And the evil of such practice, the word of God suggests here, is that the practice is tantamount to what we term bullying, to brutally taking advantage of the defenseless. God is against that. God hates that. And one of the ways we know that a society is becoming decadent, one of the ways we know that a society is moving away from God, is going on a path downward, is in its treatment of those who are physically challenged. The poor, those who are physically challenged, those who cannot fend for themselves. You look at societies, for example, societies that are what we call totalitarian, where human living and the standard of human living is just a matter of squalor. And it's interesting to note how in many instances, the poor and the less fortunate, the the physically handicapped, are treated. Those people are seen as, to use a term of one writer, and it's a very distasteful term, they are referred to as wasteful eaters. Maybe, maybe you ever heard the term, wasteful eaters. And what a sad thing it is. And the idea is, okay, we need to get rid of these people because they are taking up resources. They are taking up uh, resources that could be used by younger, healthier people. That's a sign of moral decadence. The word of God is against that. Why? Because all of human life is marked by dignity. Why? Because human life, even deformed, was created in the image of God. And the fact that God would take time out to strictly forbid such deeds is suggestive of the depth of depravity to which men can sink. Meanwhile, it highlights the fact that God compassionately cares for those with serious physical defects or limitations. And that he cares for them means that he will avenge them together with the stranger, the poor, the widow, and the fatherless. God looks out for 
the defenseless. God looks out for the helpless. And he's saying to us that part of what it means to be godly, part of what it means to be holy, is to have regard for the poor and the defenseless, the physically challenged, the handicapped, as you would say. Now, as a corrective to exploiting the weak and vulnerable, God reminded Israel, he gave them this reminder, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Suggested there is this, that when we fail to honor, when we fail to respect, when we fail to show due regard and compassionate consideration for these people, we are actually showing what? Irreverence toward God. That is what the word of God is suggesting here. Suggested here is that taking advantage of others, ridicule them, ridiculing them, demeaning them for their physical handicaps is indicative of a lack of fear of God and a denial of his lordship. God says somewhere in the book of Exodus, as he spoke to Moses, remember when Moses was deliberating how that he could not speak and remember what God said to him, who made the blind or who made the deaf and who made the, who made the deaf and who made the dumb? What is God saying there? God is the Lord of these people just as he is any other people. And then God takes up the matter of impartiality in dispensing justice in the courts. Verses 15 and 16. He says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Showing partiality in judgment was expressly forbidden. We see that in verse 15. If we are called, for example, to serve as a juror, and let's say we were a part of that juror pool, and then we did not know the individual who was going to be tried, and then we discovered the individual who was going to be tried. We know that person. What would we do? Do we remain on the jury pool or do we ask to be recused? Because somehow if we know the person and if we are on the, the if we're among the jurors, what's gonna happen is that our minds are gonna be what? Biased. We might like to think that that's not gonna be the case, but somehow there might be a bias. And part of what it means to uphold justice is not to be biased, not to be prejudiced in our thinking, in our conclusions with regard to the matter that is being adjudicated. Justice, fairness. And it would also mean not getting back. If we happen to know the person and they're not our friends, and that, that is not an occasion to get back at them. There are Christians who, who, would, who, some Christians who would do that. Verse 16 prohibits slander. You shall not go around as a slander among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. We are to be holy not just in our acts, but we are to be holy in our speech. We are to be holy not just in our works, but we are to be holy in our words. And God's displeasure with slander is evident throughout the old, entire Old Testament. The law, the prophets, the writings, even in the New Testament, the word of God is against slander. And the prophets in a context of judgment, Ezekiel 22 and verse 9 says this, in Jerusalem are slanderous men bent on shedding blood. Notice God equates slander with murder. He equates slander with murder. He does that in Ezekiel 22 verse 9. And just as 
In Ezekiel 22, verse 9, Leviticus 19, verse 16, the verse we're looking at. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 13 reads, A gossip betrays a confidence, but a trustworthy man keeps a secret. We are to be exemplary in the matter of holiness with regard to our speech. We must not be talebearers. We must not be gossips. We must not be slanderers. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 19 says this, A gossip betrays a confidence, so avoid a man who talks so much. And then verses 17 and 18, with this we close, forbids the harboring of resentment, hatred, and ill will toward another. We cannot be holy with unresolved anger in our hearts, with bitterness in our hearts. This was the word of God to ancient Israel, and it is very much applicable to you and I as Christians today. Here's what the word of God says, verses 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And here we see that when it comes to a relationship one toward another, God is as much concerned about the internal condition of our hearts as he is about our external conduct. We have seen that time and again in Scripture. To love one another as he has commanded us means loving them not only in deed but in truth, in sincerity from the heart. And as such, what it means is that we refrain from doing them any kind of hurt or refrain from thinking ill of them. Notice in the passage, if you look back at verse 17, notice the antidote to dealing with bitterness and anger. He says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. What is the point there? In other words, confront him or her, talk to him or her. Don't assume that the hurt, the anger will go away. Don't assume that things will iron themselves out, that things will take care of him. So the truth is the person might not even know that you are angry with them. God is saying you shall not hate your brother in your heart. How serious is this matter of hating our brother in our hearts? It is most serious. Why? Because suggested by Titus chapter 3 verses 1 to 3, hating one another is a feature of the old unregenerate life. Paul writes in Titus chapter 3 verses 1 to 3, remind them to be submissive to rulers, authorities. Skip down to verse 2. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Listen to what Paul says in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. What Paul is saying here, what the word of God is saying here, that that is characteristic of the old life of sin. 1 John 2, verses 9 through 11, well-known verse, verses. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Verse 11, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And then finally, 1 John 4 20 and 21, if anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God 
whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have received from him, whoever loves God must also love is his brother. From all of these verses, it is clear that if we are professing Christians and if we are harboring unresolved anger, hatred, animosity, then our salvation becomes suspect. The fact is, genuine love for others, particularly of our brothers and sisters in Christ, is part and parcel of what it means to be holy, even as God is holy. And how is this tendency toward evil and ill will to be addressed, as we said earlier, by confronting? If any of you have a matter against your brother, go and tell him privately. If you have won your brother, fine. If, it, if the word of God suggests that if it's not resolved, then take one or two other persons from the church. And if that breaks down, then take it to the elders. And if they remain irreconcilable, then what the church is to do, the church is to excommunicate that person. Now, that sounds very strange. And it sounds very strange because it's often not practiced. It's interesting, many times, excommunication will occur for certain kinds of sins, certain kinds of other sins. But yet the Word of God says that this is a particular sin that can incur one's being excommunicated. Um, and, and we need to watch these things, and we need to take these things to heart very seriously, that we cannot um, be holy, truly godly, if we are bitter, if we are, if we are angry with a brother or a sister. May God richly bless these truths to our hearts, challenge our hearts, transform our lives where necessary to his glory. Amen.